Good morning. We are continuing this morning in the Gospel of Matthew, where we have been mostly since September. And so we continue studying the Beatitudes today. So we'll be in Matthew chapter 5, if you want to turn there. <clears throat> and over the past few weeks, as we've been studying the Beatitudes, which start here in chapter 5, I was just noticing that a lot of what we have seen has been somewhat in the negative context. I don't mean negative bad, I mean negative like don't do that, where positive would be do that, right? So when we saw poor in spirit, for example, in verse 3, we said that it is not to be full of yourself. Don't, don't be full of yourself, but rather there's a kind of emptying that happens so that the Spirit of God can come in and operate and move and motivate and do all the things the Spirit does. To mourn, like we saw last week, is to mourn over the effect of sin and our own sin and the world around us. To be meek, we said, is to turn away from self, to reject boasting and the kind of natural inclination a lot of us have for defensiveness and aggressiveness, but rather humbly wait in the Lord. So a lot of those, right, we're kind of, okay, don't do this. But now when we come to verse 6 this morning, what we're seeing is more in the positive. We're getting instruction on what to do, not just what not to do as we get into this next section. But when we come to Matthew 5, 6, what we're seeing is not just do this, but we're seeing do this, and here is the wonderful promise of the outcome of this way of living. So my desire today is that after we are together now and in the word of God that we would leave here with a clear understanding of our purpose as Christians. We have a purpose, I hope you know that, that God has designed us for a reason and he has given us desire, passion, hunger, thirst, these kinds of things, only he's given them to us to be satisfied in a specific context. So as we look today at hungering and thirsting after righteousness, we are going to find out that the big problem in the world is that our desires have been hijacked by sin. Desire is not bad. It is given to us from God. But if those desires are taken captive by our flesh, by the sin that resides in us still, we're going to end up wasting our life, we're going to end up chasing after things that ultimately do not satisfy us. So I hope that this morning, Matthew 5, 6, serves as a kind of recalibration in giving us a clear picture of what God desires for us in our life and our conduct as his children and also holds out to us this unspeakable promise of what we are all after. So... Let's get into it. Got a lot of work to do. If you haven't done so, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We'll start at verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 6, which is where we'll spend most of our time this morning. So Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he had sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let's pray. Lord, I do believe that all of us here have a desire to be satisfied. And in various ways and by various means, we work towards that goal. And I pray now, Lord, that as we are able to spend just a few minutes out of our week looking at your word together, this unique and special time that you have ordained, I pray that you would encourage our hearts, that we would be redirected, if necessary, and encouraged to stay the course, to pursue the kinds of things that you have set in front of us, and that you'd give us the strength, Lord, to reject all other imposters to our satisfaction. So would you come and do that, and would you, by your Spirit, open our understanding so that we can look at your word, not as just black markings on a page, but as what it is, the living, active word of God. And would that word now have its due effect in our hearts It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen, amen. I think it's safe to say that all of us, down to the youngest infant who's here, even if they can't articulate it, all of us know what it is to be hungry, right? Especially young children, they let us know. Everybody knows when they're hungry. (laughs) But all of us understand that. So we live in a place and a time where food is not I don't think anyone's worried about this right now. I'm trying to think of the right way to say this. I don't think any of us in this room are going, I don't know if I'm going to have food tomorrow. The Lord has been so kind, hasn't he? I mean, there are so many places in the world where this is not the case. But for us, I think in our context, most of us are fairly set. We know that when we go home, there's something to eat. But we still understand this idea of hunger, right? Of, of wanting something, of needing to be filled And this is what we're getting at here in Matthew 5, 6. But I do want to ask the question, like, what is hunger? And what is thirst? I'm not talking about the the physiological kind of sensation that comes when you haven't eaten for a while or had water for a while. I mean, more basic than that, what is hunger? It's a desire. Uh, it's a longing, it's, it's, a, it's something that reminds us that there's, there's a need. So there's a perceived lack, right? I haven't eaten or drinking for a while, and therefore my body tells me, you need to go after this, and we have a desire for it. It's a longing, it's a kind of passion. And we use the word not just in food terms, but we use it in, word, in terms of desire. So someone might say, this is stepping out of my comfort zone here. I'm going to use a sportsy analogy. You ready? So someone says, yeah, even though they went 0-12 this year, they never lost that hunger for the championship. Well, what do they mean? They're not talking about food. They're talking about desire. They never lost that passion for it. I want to get there. I want to get after that. And that is how I believe Jesus is using the words hunger and thirst here in Matthew 5-6. Jesus is teaching and he's using a, a sensation, a reality that all of his listeners will be familiar with. Only he's not talking about food. But he is talking about appetite. So let's deal with the first half of verse 6 first and then we'll finish with the therefore part. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, as we've been in Matthew, and specifically in the Beatitudes, we've already defined how Jesus is using the word blessed. So sometimes that's translated as happy, and we said, yep, that's good, but there's more than that. There's more than just surface, like circumstantial happiness, that the biblical idea of blessing is that there is a kind of deep, glad-hearted joy and satisfaction in God that brings about stability. To say that you are blessed in the biblical sense is to say that all is well in your life because of the grace of God. And Jesus says here that the people who go after, who pursue the righteousness of God will be happy, will be glad and stable in the Lord. That's what he means when he's talking about hunger and thirst. Now the whole problem in the world, and I mentioned this just a minute ago, the whole problem with what we see everywhere around us is that people in general, in their sin and in their selfishness, have turned from pursuing God, hungering and thirsting after Him, and they have gone to just about any other option that's available. And of course, this plays itself out in a myriad number of ways, but in general, I think most people view their pursuits, their desires, their passions, not as being focused on God or on what he has for his people, but on whatever can just make us happy in the moment. This is the effect of sin. Like I said, desire is not sinful. But when sin taints that desire, that drive, that passion, that longing, and, and gets us off the target so that we're going after something that does not honor God or promotes self, this is when we get into trouble. And it is rampant all the way around us. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not saying that the pursuit of righteousness is dull and boring and that the pursuit of the world is exciting and flashy. That's how it seems sometimes. That is not the case. There is so much joy and happiness when we live in accordance with the way that God calls us to live. This whole section of Matthew is talking about the happiness, the blessing of those who live according to the word of God. God is not anti-happiness, but it has to come through the right channels. It has to come in the proper way. We have to understand that the Bible does not tell us to pursue happiness for happiness' sake. You are not going to open your Bible and read, just do whatever it takes to be happy. Blessedness, happiness, comes, biblically speaking, as a byproduct of pursuing something else. Case in point, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. The hunger and the thirst for righteousness is what produces the happiness, the blessing. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who pursue happiness, right? He says, happy are those who pursue righteousness. We've got to get that order right so that we don't just say, well, God wants me to be happy at any cost. I'm going to pursue what I think will make me happy and God will honor it. Lie. We are called to pursue the righteousness of God. We're going to find out what that is here in a moment. And when we do that, in the power that God gives us, there is absolute and perfect 
happiness and joy. That's where we're headed in the text, and I can't wait to get there. So what does Jesus mean when he uses the word righteousness? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. What's he talking about? The word righteousness is used in a couple of different ways in the Bible, okay? Sometimes it's used to refer to that which we receive from Jesus at the moment of conversion. I think you understand this. We've talked about this a lot. When a person is united to Christ by faith, when we are saved, converted, whatever term you want to put on that, we receive as a gift the perfect righteousness of Jesus, his credit, his merit, his perfect obedience. That is imputed to us. Imputed means given. Okay? So at the moment that a person is regenerated by the grace of God, that righteousness, that perfection, if you will, is transferred to our account. Therefore, God can see us as perfect as Christ is. That's one of the ways that we talk about righteousness, and it is correct. But I don't think that is the kind of righteousness Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5, 6. He's not saying, blessed are those who desire to be counted righteous. You remember, we've already established that all of his teaching here is for those who are already righteous, who are already Christians. The Sermon on the Mount is not some kind of ladder for us to say, okay, if I live this way, if I do that, if I mourn my sin, if I do it, then I'll be right with God. These are instructions given to the people of God who already have been counted righteous because of Jesus. So this is not what he's saying. He is not saying, well, you're going to be happy if you desire to be counted righteous. We already are that in Christ. So what does he mean? What does Jesus mean when he says, blessed are you, happy will you be, if you hunger, if you pursue and go after righteousness? I think in this context, righteousness means living your life in accordance with God's will. Living your life in accordance with God's will. These are the external, observable things that we do as redeemed people. The righteousness he's talking about here is the standard of living that is a response to the grace of God that has already been given. You with me so far? So we're not talking here about doing things so that we become something. We are talking about doing things in response to the action that God has already taken. And in this way, the word righteousness is referring to the observable obedience of the Christian life. Now, I'm going to go to a couple more texts so that we can see this really clearly, and we don't even have to go outside of Matthew, but I want to show you a couple of these so that we really understand what Jesus is talking about. If you go to the next chapter, to Matthew 6, Jesus says this in Matthew 6, 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Well, there it cannot mean our right standing before God. Beware of practicing your right standing before God, right? That that doesn't make sense. He is referring to the external obedience that flows out of a changed heart. Your righteousness, your right conduct, if you want to look at it that way. He is saying, be careful that you don't flaunt your obedience in front of other people just so that they think you're super holy. There's no value in that before God, okay? Okay? So you get how he's using the word? Again, at the end of chapter 6, 
Jesus is talking about anxiety. He's talking about the ways that we often worry ourselves about what we're going to eat and drink and wear, what we're going to do. And he says, don't, don't do that. God will take care of you. And as he's telling us about how to handle these anxieties in our life in Matthew 6.33, he says this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek the kingdom in the way that God desires you to live in that kingdom. We can call this the way of his righteousness. And when you live this way, God will provide for what he knows you need. You see how that word is being used there again? So we'll unpack that when we get to chapter 6 a little bit more. So I'm saying that in this context, when Jesus is teaching here, the righteousness is obedience to the way that God desires us to live as found in his word. And Jesus is saying, those who live this way, those who align themselves with what God has laid out for his people, are the blessed ones. They will experience this joy and gladness and stability in the Lord. But we can't just leave it at this. Right? I, it would be incomplete if we just said, well, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And we're like, well, great, but why? <laughs> what, what is this doing? What is this accomplishing? So I want to ask the question, why the pursuit of righteousness makes us blessed? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Why? How does this work? Well, keep reading. Second half of the verse, Matthew 5, 6. Let's look at this again. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for, that's the word because, for they shall be satisfied. I don't think there's a greater word in this section than these, they shall be satisfied. Let me ask you this. What is it that drives you? What's the engine of your life that is causing you to go, to do, to act? What is that in you? I think all of us, in some way or another, are pursuing something. We're going after something. This does not matter if you are young, if you are old. I meant that as a compliment. If you are employed, if you are a student, if you're married, if you're single, all of us are going after something. We, we desire something. We are working towards something. Better health, better job, better circumstances, whatever it is, we are, for the most part, constantly pursuing something. And if you have lived longer than two minutes in the world, you know that oftentimes these pursuits that we think are the right things, we convince ourselves, i got to get after that, they end up leaving us, what, full and happy? Seldom, if ever, right? Oftentimes the things that we think are important, the things that we are driving at and pursuing leave us feeling unsatisfied and wanting more. I remember when Tiff and I were first married and the boys were young and things were just always tight. And I, I remember thinking, if I could just make 10 more thousand a year, boy, think of all the problems that would solve. If I could just, if I could just get a little bit more. And so I'd work for it. I'd roof more houses. I'd pour more concrete. I'd, whatever the case was. 
How foolish. <laughs> I mean, for one thing, that betrays the fact that I didn't trust in God to provide for everything we need. And it betrays the sense that the things I was hungering and thirsty for would never satisfy me. John D. Rockefeller, the American billionaire, was being interviewed by a newspaper reporter. And the reporter's asking him about his life and his spending habits and his, all this kinds of stuff. <clears throat> and he says, so for you, how much money would be enough? And Rockefeller says, just a little more. Just a little more. You see, that is the way that most of us think. We tend to convince ourselves that if we just had the thing, if we just could work our way into getting that, that just seems just out of grasp, if we could pursue that and get it, that we'd be happy. And maybe for a moment you would be. But new cars wear out, new clothes rip, new relationships go sour. You, you know this. There is not ultimate satisfaction in the pursuits of the world. There just isn't. And what Jesus is trying to do here is redirect us so that we don't waste our energy, but we pursue the things that ultimately matter, ultimately will satisfy us. Now, I think for a lot of us, maybe it's money, the stuff that we go after. It tends to be a big one, but that's not the only thing. There are so many other things that we pursue that can be just as dangerous, just as damaging. We tend to get locked into things like, if I just had, if I just had better health, if I could be free from this pain, or if I could look different, and then we just absorb and we just get sucked into this hole of work and work and work and work towards this goal. And you get there, and it's like, well, okay, now what? Or how about relationally? Some people think, oh, if I could just be married, I'd, all my problems will be gone. <laughs> Whew, that was a good one. <clears throat> or if my spouse would just shape up, then everything would be better, right? We get these wild ideas in our minds of things that we think would satisfy us. And we go after it with all our might. And all the while, the word of God is sitting here saying, don't waste your time. Now, it's not that health or marriage or whatever are bad things. They are gifts from God. But we must get the priority right. If we take the pursuit of these kinds of things and we elevate them higher than our pursuit of God and our pursuit of living in his kingdom and our pursuit of his righteousness, we will be perpetually dissatisfied, which is just a rotten kind of person to be around, right? You've been around these people, never content, never happy, never satisfied, always whining about something. Boy, that sounds like a great time, doesn't it? No. No, God calls us to something much greater with a much greater satisfaction. Only those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be satisfied. Now, I want to take you to a couple other places in the Bible where this word satisfied is used because I want to get the full impact and significance of what Jesus is saying when he says, you will be satisfied. Now, I know some translations of the Bible have the word filled, which is okay, 
but I think satisfied is a much better translation of the Greek word because it denotes a filling to overflowing, an abundance, an excess even. It's a, this will be great. It's the word that was used for when they fattened animals for the slaughter. They got them to the point where there was no room for anything else. They were at maximum capacity, maximum fullness. Nothing else could fit in there. So let's stay in Matthew, and I'm going to show you two other places, two very similar texts, where we see this word, and it's going to help us understand the, the wonder of what Jesus is holding out for us. Matthew 14, you don't have to turn here. You can just listen. Matthew 14 is the first account of Jesus feeding a large number of people with a very small amount of food, okay? This is the feeding of the 5,000. So we have 5,000 men plus women and children, and the disciples come and they say, you got to get these people to Burger King because it's late and they've been here all day and all this stuff's going on. Jesus says, you feed them, right? And they're like, all I have is this bologna sandwich. I'm contextualizing here, right? So Jesus does this unbelievable miracle by feeding all of these people with a very small, seemingly insignificant amount of food. And in chapter 14, verse 20, we read this. And they all ate... 5,000 plus women and children. They all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces of leftovers. Next chapter, chapter 15, same thing. Jesus feeds 4,000 this time. Same kind of circumstances. Very unlikely, very small amount, but he miraculously multiplies it. And we read this in 1537. And they all ate and were satisfied and took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Now, here's why I cite these, to help us understand the impact of this word satisfied. In the two examples here, the provision, the thing that resulted in the satisfaction, was not just adequate. It wasn't like, ooh, we barely squeaked by, and we had just enough, that was close, we almost ran out, but we did until that was, that was lucky, right? There's this idea of abundance. Everybody ate till they were full, and there was a whole bunch left over. So don't hear satisfied as just kind of getting close to the top, kind of a marginal satisfaction. This is meant to be explosive, abundant, excessive even, satisfaction as we see here with the things left over and the lesson that we're supposed to learn in 14 and 15 is that Jesus is able to abundantly provide for everything his people need not just adequate provision not just barely up to the mark but overflowing in liberality the good kind okay so that is the meaning of the word we see this abundant satisfaction that is meant by this description. So take that back to Matthew 5, 6. Back to our text for this morning. What do we see? Let me paraphrase this now. Happy are those who pursue holy living, for they will be abundantly satisfied. That's my summary. Happy are those who pursue holy living, for they will be abundantly satisfied. The pursuit of righteousness is the pursuit of holiness. If that's helpful, kind of a way for you to think about, okay, what is it to pursue this righteousness? It is the pursuit of holiness. It is saying, I am going to pursue Christ-likeness 
more and more until I am conformed into the image of Jesus and I'm going to pursue less and less the things that the world kind of offers to me that my, my own flesh wants to go after. Instead, I am going to pursue holy living. But now here, we have a little bit of an interpretive issue. What is the timing of this satisfaction? Last week, we noted the sort of forward look of the beatitude. The meek shall inherit the earth, and we confirmed that future tense with Hebrews 2, if you remember that discussion. And here we have the same kind of language. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So what's the, what's the tense? What, what, when does this satisfaction happen? You could say, well, the word shall doesn't mean future. It means certainty, as in it will happen, right? That, that's a way we use the word. That's, that's right. So I actually think there's, there's a threefold way in which we should interpret this kind of satisfaction. This has to do with timing. But I think there's three different ways in which God satisfies us. And it had to be three because we're Trinitarian. It just had to be. That's, that's the way it is. So let me tell you what I think, and then you see if you don't agree. I think that the satisfaction Jesus talks about is immediate, that it is ongoing, and that it is future. Immediate, ongoing, and future. Let me explain what I mean by that. First, there is a sense in which right now, the people of God can be satisfied in the Lord. Moses prayed this way in Psalm 90, verse 14. He says, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. He doesn't say, In two months, satisfy us. He says, Right now, this morning, God, this is a prayer, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. And you know what? God does. Every morning that you wake up, God extends grace, he demonstrates love for us, he provides for us, he guides us, he gives us hope through the gospel, he gives us his spirit, he is working now in your life to satisfy you. And if you don't see that, open your eyes and see all of the ways that God is just lavishly giving us, not only what we need, but way more. Way more. Now second, I would say the satisfaction is ongoing. Meaning, it's not just a one-time satisfaction and then you wait forever until you be satisfied again. It is ongoing in nature. When I was a kid, every now and then we would get pop. Soda, Coke, I don't know. Whatever you want to call it. Soft drinks. <laughs> so anyways... Every now and then we'd get pop, and I would ask if I could have one, and my mom would say, well, you can, but just remember, when it's gone, it's gone. Meaning what? There's a limited amount. It, this is not going to be an ongoing thing. You can enjoy it now, but eventually that enjoyment is going to be done, so make it last. Is that the kind of satisfaction that Jesus gives us? Is it a 12-pack of raspberry Shasta? No. No, the satisfaction that Jesus holds out to us is ongoing. 
the, the more that we regularly seek God, pursue righteousness, the more he will reveal himself to us. And the more that he reveals himself to us, the more we become satisfied in him and have a desire to pursue him even more. This is cyclical. It is progressive. It is ongoing, the kind of satisfaction that Jesus is holding out to his people. This is not optional. This is not occasional. And this is why I think Jesus connects the satisfaction to eating and drinking. You say, well, why did he do that? Why didn't he use a different kind of analogy, a different illustration? Eating and drinking are things we do every day, right? This is something that is a regular rhythm of our life. And Jesus wants the pursuit of this righteousness to be every bit as regular as eating and drinking is in your life. Ongoing, never ending. It is the way to be satisfied. Lastly, there's a sense in which the satisfaction Jesus talks about is future. Okay, So it's, it's immediate. There's things happening now. It is ongoing in its nature. It's never going to end. But there is a sense in which this satisfaction is future. So let me ask a question here. What is it right now that prevents us from experiencing full and uninhibited satisfaction. What is it in our life right now that prevents us from taking full advantage of the satisfaction that comes through Christ and the pursuit of godly living? What is it? Sin. Right? It's sin in the form of competing desires. That's what prevents satisfaction. There is no satisfaction problem with the Bible. The problem comes when in our own selfishness, our own sin, we pursue the wrong things or the right thing for the wrong reason. Got that? Sin is what prevents us distances us, separates us from the unbelievable fullness of satisfaction that is promised to us in Christ. And that's why I say that in the future, this will be different. And you know why. We'll get to that in a minute. Sin makes the pursuit of holiness look boring. Doesn't it at times? I mean, I'm just being super honest. There are so many times when I experiences myself or I talk with other people they're like "Ah, I just just can't get excited about reading my bible or I can't get whatever and yet they'll yell their lungs out at a sporting event what is it about us that makes the things of God seem dull seem no yeah take it or leave it what it's sin (laughs) it's imposter desires that sneak their way into our life and convince us that if you just went after that It's out of your reach, just reach a little bit more. Once you have it, oh, you'd be happy. That's a lie. Sin is the thing that prevents us, but in the future, there will be no sin. Can you imagine? Can you imagine all of your desires, all of your drive, all of your passion, all of your motivation being free from sin? What is that going to look like? 
tell you what it's going to look like. It's going to look like satisfaction. Big time satisfaction. So of course, the ultimate good and the ultimate hope of life in the resurrection on a new heavens and a new earth is being with God in the presence of God, unmediated holiness and glory right there in front of us. But a close second is the absence of sin, the purification of our desires, causing us to always want the right thing and never want the wrong thing. Huh. The future reality of the satisfaction that comes by pursuing a life of righteousness is almost unspeakable. But it's what Jesus holds out for us. There is a time when we will be free from all of the things that destroy our pursuits. So do you want to be happy? I mean, really happy. I mean, joyful despite circumstances. I mean, unshakably confident in God. Do you want to live that way? Then pursue the kingdom. Pursue the righteousness of God. Lay aside these meaningless pursuits that we're all on. Young, young people, there's a lot of kids, school-aged, college, they want to get your attention. Listen to what I'm saying. You are coming up on a season now of transitions, right? Headed into middle school, headed into high school, headed into college or career or whatever you're going. You have the opportunity right now to start living this way so that when you get to be 25, 35, 45 years old, you don't look back and go, man, I, why did I do that? Why didn't I pursue righteousness? Why didn't I do Now I have all this regret and I wish I would have done Don't do that. You have the chance, kids, right now. Listen to your parents. Listen to your pastors. Listen to the Lord and follow the path of righteousness. Whatever else is out there is secondary at best. You will never be sorry for pursuing the things of the Lord. And for those of us who are older, maybe you look back and you have regret because you wasted a bunch of time. But you know what? God will forgive that. You haven't blown it. You haven't gone beyond repair. Ask God to forgive you for wasting your time, for pursuing selfish things, and commit right now to pursuing the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's what he calls us to. And if you really want to be happy, if you really want to be satisfied, this is the only way. It's the only way. I want to close by reading some verses from Psalm 63. It's one of my favorite texts in the Psalms. You can just listen, you can turn there if you want, but just gonna listen, then we'll pray. But I wanted to read these verses because I think Psalm 63 gives us a really clear picture of the connection between the pursuit and the satisfaction. So so Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, desire, go after, pursue. This is not kind of a passive thing where we just sit there and go, Well, I hope God satisfies me sometime soon. You gotta go for it. And I think this psalm gives us a really clear picture of that engaging in the pursuit and the reward of that pursuit being satisfaction. Psalm 63, 1 to 7. 
O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied, as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be satisfied. Let's pray. Father, we confess now corporately together that oh, so often we do not live this way. We have needs, we have wants, we have desires, and oftentimes we're so intent on fulfilling those needs and desires that we, we forget that you have promised to meet all of our needs, to provide what we need according to your riches in Christ Jesus. And so, Father, we repent of this faithlessness and of not trusting in you the way we should. I pray that our time here this morning, Lord, of seeing the pursuit of righteousness, of holy living, of pleasing you through our actions, Lord, would you help us to understand this is the only way to true and lasting happiness, to lasting satisfaction. And all of us want to be satisfied. And so, God, would you through the power of your spirit and the power of your word, redirect our desires. Help us to see the foolishness of sin. Help us to see the emptiness of the pursuit of our fleshly desires. And would you, just like the psalmist prayed, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. And I pray, Lord, that as we seek you, as we pursue you, as you satisfy us throughout this life, that we would come closer and closer to you, that our lives would look more and more like that of your son, Jesus Christ. And we just so desperately need your help with this. None of us can be pleasing to you on our own. And so we ask that you would work in us, Lord, that your word would have its due effect in us, and that by the power of your spirit, you would help us to pursue righteousness so that we can be truly satisfied. And thank you for this promise. Thank you for your word. And even now, Lord, as we, as we come to the table, what a great reminder of what you have done to make this possible. What a, what a privilege. This is not just part of our liturgy, something we threw in, but God, this time now at your table is precious because it reminds us that all of the things you have promised to us find their fulfillment in Jesus. And because of his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection, all of those promises find their yes and their amen in Christ. So God, as we come now and we eat and we drink together, as we commemorate the death of your son, remind us that it is only through the power of Christ that we can live this way. And would you motivate us towards greater love greater obedience, greater faithfulness. 
And I pray this now in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.